This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. person for today we're gonna to use a couple sources so it, this is gonna start out with Namus. she is 4104 goes missing from east baton rouge parish in uh, baton rouge louisiana on december 25th 1988 she has green eyes and brown hair she gets entered into Namus december 22nd 2009 She's a Caucasian female, five feet, one inches tall, weighs 105 pounds. She would have been 32 years old when she went missing. And she has a couple of photos in the uh, her name is file and even more elsewhere I saw. Um, her name is Rebecca Pauline Gary. Charlie Project has a range on her. 51105 is what Namus says. Charlie Project says between five feet tall and five feet four inches tall and 105 to 125 pounds. Other than that, the, the descriptions are pretty similar. It does say over here that she has a birthmark on her right leg near her knee, a tattoo on her right arm, uh, which is a lion, a lion's head, or a Leo astrological sign. Also says her nickname was Becky. A number of people have picked this up and kind of run with it over the years. NBC News has it. There's a Facebook page. Uh, she's in the Louisiana Missing Persons uh, file as well as Doe Network and NamUs. Capital Region Crime Stoppers had her and the Detroit Free Press had an article on her. The description from Charlie Project kind of goes like this. Becky Gary was last seen at her apartment in the 8300 block of Airline Highway in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, on December 27, 1988. She called her sister that day and said things weren't working out. She wanted to move back to Shreveport, where she'd lived before. She was never heard from again. In the first week of January in 1989, so two weeks later, Becky's apartment manager called her sister to say the rent was due and that uh, Becky wasn't answering the door. The manager let herself inside the apartment and found the lights and the coffee maker were on. The bathtub had been filled with water and there were two cups on the bar. 
In the bedroom, they found Becky's driver's license, purse, and car keys. There was a packed suitcase on the bed, and there were family photos spread out beside the packed suitcase. The manager wanted to put Becky's belongings out in the street because the rent hadn't been paid, but her sister asked her not to until the police came to check things out. When the manager checked in a few weeks later, the lights were off, but the suitcase and the photographs were still on the bed. The rest of her clothing was hanging in the closet, and her car was parked in the parking lot. There was an autographed photograph of Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards found, found torn up on a counter in her home. Becky has never been heard from again, and the police never did come to the apartment. Eventually, Becky's brother went there and collected her things. She was reported officially as a missing person on January 20th, 1989. This is three and a half weeks after she was last seen, which is, you know, according to this, either December 25th or December 27th of 1988. Becky's daughter, Jamie Williams, believes that Edwards was involved in her mother's disappearance. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Becky's daughter, Jamie Williams, thinks that the governor of Louisiana was involved in her disappearance. She claims that Becky was obsessed with Edwin Edwards and that two of them had an affair. Becky reportedly was planning to end the affair at the time she went missing. I'm going to pause there for a second. This is a kind of a run-of-the-mill person going missing at Christmas time in Louisiana when we start out reading about it. She's a, a, a woman who is 32 years old, and she's basically saying that she's moving back to a place that she liked better than where, where she's living now. Not that unusual, except her stuff is found in her apartment. She hasn't paid the rent for January. And her daughter claims that she had an affair with the governor of Louisiana. The governor gets questioned about this. And he says he had no involvement in her disappearance. He had not had a romantic relationship with her. His office does turn over several letters that Becky had written to him. Now, in 2001, so a considerable amount of time later, Edwin Edwards is convicted of charges of racketeering, money laundering, conspiracy. And he's sentenced to 10 years in prison. Has nothing to do with this case, that happening. Becky was employed as a waitress at the time of her disappearance. She lived with her daughter, Jamie Williams, and she was raising her by herself. Jamie Williams' father was not part of the equation. And Becky had insisted that Jamie take a bus to spend the 1988 Christmas holidays with relatives down in Shreveport. They even had an argument about this at the bus station. And this is the last time that Jamie Williams saw her mother. Authorities, for their part, have described Becky's disappearance as suspicious. They stated her apartment appeared as if she had been packing to go somewhere and she had been suddenly interrupted. For about a year prior to going missing, Becky had been carrying a large manila envelope. She hid it under her bed, and she told her mother that if anything ever happened to her, her relatives should open the envelope and examine the contents. This envelope was missing from Becky's apartment after she vanished. 
Jamie Williams is still searching for her mother. She does believe there's a possibility that she left voluntarily in 1988 and she might still be alive. But Becky's case remains unsolved. So what do you think about this one? Well, so it, it, the um, association with the governor is, uh, it starts this sort of like, what? You know, like it's like a crack in the foundation, basically. Um, I have no idea how credible it is. I did look to see how old her daughter was, and it appears she's around 12. Uh, do you know if that's right or at least not wrong? You mean back then? Yeah, like at the time, because I assume she's she's saying all this at the time, right? Yes. Um, now, my understanding uh, from just sort of the different places I've seen information is I she wanted to go back home, and I'm not entirely sure what was back home to Shreveport. I'm not entirely sure what was stopping her from going. Uh, she did, you know, I believe she sent her her daughter to her mother's house, right? Which would have been um, her daughter's grandmother. And so I read that that was sort of this like spur of the moment type thing. And depending on like how much you infer from that, like that could be a situation where, oh, I want my daughter to go and spend time with my family for the holiday. Uh, But it's weird that she didn't go as well. But it, and because she didn't go, it almost made me think that she knew that there was some sort of imminent danger lurking, right? Uh, and she was trying to save her daughter. Okay. Uh, does that make sense? I mean, obviously, this is me completely speculating out based on the information that's been given, right? While I don't think it's very, I don't think it's completely odd to put a 12-year-old on a bus or I I believe she was around that age and say, okay, you're going to my family's house for Christmas. It is strange that she's not going with her. Well, I'll say that. So the daughter gets married in the mid nineties around 1995. So that ties in like if, if she gets married pretty young, um, that to me ties into you being right on the age. Um, she's somewhere 12 or 13 years old. And then, so, you know, seven years later, she's around, you know, 1920 and she's getting married for the first time. I, I, I went to the Facebook page. I don't know if you checked this out. So there's a number of things that go on there over the years. There's a couple of sisters, Becky's sisters are pretty active on there and the daughter is active on there. And, uh, there are, these situations that arrive, like uh, Samuel Little had a sketch of a victim that allegedly was possibly Louisiana. The problem is it's too early to be Becky. Like this, like allegedly he did all of that in 1982, but the, uh, the, you've got six years before Becky goes missing. So that sort of puts a a dink in it. They're still having like memorials to celebrate her life. They talk about her on her birthday. She pops up in news articles quite a bit. So this case gets some coverage. Um, And like I said, there's a pretty cool Facebook group 
uh, or it may be a Facebook page. They just kind of post about her and collect all the information together. Uh, they definitely talk about her every every Christmas. Um, I think I think it becomes a thing for particularly the daughter and uh, the the one sister. I think they, it's a big deal for them every Christmas that she's still missing. Um, you know, it, it's some of these cases are hard for me to, to kind of relate to that are like in the late eighties. They feel like so far away in time. And then I think they're not that far away. And then I start doing the math and I realize that it's, it is a long time ago now it's, you know, over 30 years. That's, that's very weird for it to be 35 years or whatever it is. And only in 1988, there's a lot of information available on one of the Bayou Chronicles podcast, I believe covered it. And that is shared on the Facebook page, among other things. Bayoujustice.com did a either 2022 or 2023 article about this whole governor thing. And for those of you who don't know, Edwin Edwards, he passed away a couple of years ago. He was a multi-term governor out of Louisiana. Uh, he, did, he definitely did some time in prison. That was much later, I can't remember exactly when it was, he tried having political comebacks like all over the place. And he ultimately just kind of fails out on that. I don't like you, you can pull up multiple sources on Edwin Edwards and get more information than I have on him. Uh, he is one of those guys that never quit. I think he came back and maybe ran for Congress after getting out of prison um, ultimately in 2015, he got pneumonia. And then in, I want to say in 2020, he, he got some kind of respiratory problem. And I, I don't know what it was, whether it was pneumonia returning or maybe it was COVID or cause it was in that time frame. But, uh, he ends up going like right into hospice care and he, he passes away pretty quickly, uh, sometime maybe a month before his 94th birthday, I believe. Anyways, so that guy has a lot of scandals. Whether he's related to this or not, I have no idea. There are some very odd things that happened to him. Uh, one of his brothers was murdered. He was an uh, assistant district attorney in Acadia Parish. He got murdered back in 1983 by a guy named Rodney Wingett, who later killed himself. Now, weirdly, Wingett had been pardoned by Governor Edwards in 1980 for drug convictions in the 70s. There's there's just so many, like, strange things that sort of surround him. He sort of is his own podcast in a way. Whether it's uh, attached to Becky, I I couldn't tell you. Like, I have not seen anything here where I look at it and go, yeah, that makes sense. You're right. She was 12 years old. It says it in one of these articles that I that I had over here. They're very active looking for her. The information that is repeated, I'm going to be completely honest, it is literally repeated. It is like the Charlie Project just gets a few extra words in it. Right. And it, there's just not much going on that makes any of this make sense in a way that it's that it really can be determined if she is attached to the governor or not. So at one point in time, I read that Becky ended up being questioned in a murder case 
where someone out of Texas had somehow made his way over to uh, Louisiana around the same time that Becky disappeared or just before. I think he went on trial maybe in 1988 and got convicted, but that didn't make sense to me. I always wondered after reading about this case, I multiple times I've wondered what is in that envelope that she supposedly had. Or where is the envelope? Yeah. She told her daughter about it and said it would be taped under the mattress. And then it just sort of, uh, it sort of vanishes and it's, it's, it's not, uh, we don't know what happened there. Yeah. That's really strange to me. And that's also like a really strange thing to like task your, your youngish child with, right? It's a, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely a bizarre thing to task a, a, a 11 or 12 year old girl with the knowledge that, you know, this whole uh, crazy thing is happening where uh, mom is having an affair and she's got this secret envelope. And, you know, I don't know what is true in that group of things. This is a, uh, a 32 year old woman when she goes missing. I, I don't know. I, I wish I could dig a little more into this, Unfortunately, everywhere I look, I didn't find good directions to go from here. Well, right. All of it's just speculation. She disappeared so unexpectedly. Uh, There wasn't any sort of immediate investigation to gather any sort of evidence, right? And she was reported missing like three and a half weeks later, right? Yeah. And so much could have transpired during that time. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it it just becomes it's all just speculation because, uh, you know, while I understand that, like, you know, she had every right to just not be at her apartment and not be talking to anybody. Uh, when stuff like that occurs, like you know, crucial moments are missed that you can't ever get back, right? As far as like any sort of physical confrontation that had occurred there's you know it there's an allusion to uh are the building manager alludes to seeing two cups at the bar right yeah and that would suggest you know of course her daughter you know lived there and she just wasn't there at that on that particular uh time right Correct. now we don't know from the time her daughter saw her until the building manager called the sister to say, Hey, your sister uh, hasn't paid their rent and uh, she's not opening the door. And the sister said, you need to go in there and see what's going on. Right. So we don't know like when during that time uh, she actually disappeared. We, we have, we are, we are pretty much in the dark on any kind of timeline or any kind of breadcrumb trail to follow related to her. Right. And unfortunately, you know, once that's kind of lost, unless there's some sort of significant sort of pretty much any kind of evidence that arises, it's really hard to get back on track. Yeah. I mean, if somebody had the envelope, that would be like a good starting point. Or if somebody could come forward and confess they did something to her, that would be potentially a good starting point. I was going to say, even some like really good, like, so, okay, (laughs) it. It seems like 
some more context could be gleaned out of this whole envelope situation, right? I had thought that, you know, I had thought that the family would be able, like somebody in there would be able to at least spark something. Right. Like the, like it would have to have to do like this, that, or the other, but it seems like it would give some credence to like why she was dead all of a sudden. Yeah. I, it, it does seem like, uh, it, it would be able to put things in perspective. It also seems like uh, having information that would explain why you were dead all of a sudden shouldn't just stay in an envelope to be open after you die. Well, like, I don't, I should, don't disagree with that. It's not very useful. You should probably be giving it to, you know, the police before you're dead. I, you know, I, I don't have a lot of extra on this case. I just wanted to mention her since it's a good, it appears to be a Christmas time disappearance in terms of she puts her daughter on the bus and she's reported missing shortly thereafter. And so that's how she gets in here. And this is, you know, it, it's heartbreaking when there are people left behind to wonder, you know? Sure. Yeah. So we have an exoneration today. This one comes from the Bronx, New York. So Bronx County, Bronx, New York. Uh, the reported crime date is 1995. Uh, there are convictions in this case in 1997 and exonerations in 2012. Uh, this is a black male an exoneree. He was 18 years old at the, at the time of the reported crime. Uh, there's no DNA evidence to contribute to this exoneration. Uh, the sentence was 25 to life. And uh, I'll just, I'll jump into the, the crime on this one. On January 17th, 1995, 38-year-old Denise Raymond, a Federal Express executive, was found, was bound, gagged, and blindfolded in her Bronx apartment. And then she was shot twice in the head. Her body was found the, the following morning, so January the 18th. At 4.30 a.m. on January the 19th, less than 24 hours after Denise had been found, 43-year-old Baith Diop, a driver for New Harlem Car Service, was fatally shot on a Bronx street about a block from Raymond's apartment in what police said appeared to be a robbery. So this is a, a block away from Denise Raymond's house, and it's, a, it's apparently a second robbery. A woman named Catherine Gomez told police investigating Denise's homicide that she had heard a group of young men talking about the murder while she was in a park in the Bronx. Gomez said that on January the 17th, she heard the men talking about robbing a taxi and a girl. To be clear, Gomez is saying she heard this on January 17th. Denise Raymond is murdered on January the 17th, but the taxi incident happens on January the 19th. And she says that she heard all this on January 17th. Police then, a little early, right? It's a little early. Police found a woman named Miriam Tavares, a drug addict who regularly hung out in the same part. Tavares, who only spoke Spanish, told police that she also heard young men discussing the murder. Based on the statements made by Tavares and Gomez, police eventually charged Devin Ayers, 18, 
Michael Cosme, 19, Carlos Perez, 25, and Israel Vasquez, 17, with murdering Denise Raymond at the behest of Denise's former boyfriend, Charles McKinnon. Police said that Denise was killed because she had rebuffed McKinnon's efforts to rekindle their relationship, and she had threatened to tell the police that Charles McKinnon was stealing drugs. McKinnon was charged with conspiring to have the other four kill Raymond. So right there, we have a pretty massive situation going on where we've got a juvenile, a pretty young adult, and then two late teenagers being hired by this guy, Charles McKinnon, or being, I don't know if you want to say hired or whatever, to essentially execute Denise Raymond. So police said that while questioning Tavares, she told them that she heard the cab driver being shot. She saw a number of people flee from the cab or the car, the car service, after the shots were fired. She identified them as Devin Ayers, Michael Cosme, Carlos Perez, Israel Vasquez, and 18-year-old Eric Glisson along with 27-year-old Kathy Watkins. During their investigation, police learned that the driver had been dispatched to 30 West 141st Street. He picked up the people who robbed and killed him. Watkins was a resident of that building, and police asked her to come into the police station to talk. While there, she was asked to answer a telephone and pretend that she was ordering a car to pick her up. Police had also brought in the dispatcher who took the call that sent the driver to the 141st Street address. The dispatcher, she listened to Watkins' voice on the phone from another part of the station. And after Watkins spoke to her, the dispatcher said that she immediately recognized Watkins as the person who had called. So, Watkins was then charged with the murder of, of Baith Diop, and so were Ayers, Cosme, Perez, Vasquez, and Glisson. Watkins did not know any of her co-defendants. All right, so just to recap there, in a very short order, to begin with, we had, you know, two late teenagers, one young adult, and a, and a juvenile. They're charged with the murder of Denise Raymond on behalf of her boyfriend. Like, like they're hired or, or cajoled, convinced to do that. Then the same group of people, we are going to not subtract anybody except Charles McKinnon, the sort of ringleader or like the, the conspirator. We're actually going to add two people after we get rid of him. We're going to add Eric Glisson and Kathy Watkins to this mix. They're all now charged with basically two murders. I don't, I don't know about like you, Meg, but that's a lot, right? It, it's almost, it's very close to one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. Yeah. For, and and it's, it's not going to make more sense when everything is over said and done with here. It's actually going to make less. So there's that. Uh, I would say it's, it's among the most ridiculous things I've seen as well. When you have situations like this, a, a lot of stuff happens where 
I, I think when people jump on these threes, I guess you would call them, I think it's really easy to make a lot of mistakes. You You've mean got, from the investigative part of it? Yeah, the investigative part of it, the witness identification part of it, I think can all snowball very quickly. If it's a bad investigation, it's a lot easier to get BS out of the witnesses. Oh yeah. Especially when, um, you've got some, and, and this doesn't necessarily apply to this group, but like, you know, bumbling sort of unaware oblivious people who are suddenly being charged, uh, or threatened to be charged. And, you know, you start talking all kinds of nonsense, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a large stack of nonsense here. It's not going to get better. Not right away. So, Ayers, Cosme, Perez, and Vasquez, they go on trial for the murder of Denise Freeman and Baif Diop's murder in March of 1997. One of the key prosecution witnesses in Denise's case is a friend of Raymond's, uh, Denise Raymond's, Kim Alexander. The idea of that testimony is that Kim Alexander saw, on the evening that Denise gets murdered, Charles McKinnon get into the elevator on an upper floor of where Denise Raymond and Kim Alexander worked. So Kim Alexander says she rode down the elevator with Denise and Charles and that they were arguing the whole way down. She actually said that the argument continued as Charles followed Denise out of the building. So obviously this is not the apartment. This is at the place of business, but it's what it is. So the prosecution rely on that testimony at the trial to argue that Charles McKinnon had alerted Ayers and the other three that Denise was leaving so that they would be ready to ambush her as soon as she gets home. That's a, that's the, that's the crux of, of the, the key testimony here on March 5th, 1997 Ayers, Cosme and Perez, they're convicted on both murders and each of them gets 25 years to life in prison on each of these cases. And for some reason, they're sentenced to consecutive sentences. Vasquez is acquitted of Baith Diop's murder, but convicted of murdering Denise. An appeals court later reverses his conviction, ruling there's insufficient evidence of, of guilt. So he was the youngest one of the group, Israel Vasquez was. He was the juvenile. In 1998, Charles McKinnon is tried separately, so this is over a year later, for Denise Raymond's murder. As the trial nears its end, the prosecution discloses for the first time that a security video from Raymond's office building, so where Denise Raymond worked, directly contradicts Kim Alexander's testimony because it shows Denise Raymond and Kim Alexander walking out together and there's no Charles McKinnon to be seen. The trial judge offered to declare a mistrial, but McKinnon chose to go forward with the trial and he gets acquitted. So I just want to point out something that happens with this case. Because it's an acquittal, the record of the case in the trial gets sealed. This is in New York. Did you know this? Um, yeah, I'm aware of that. And, you know, obviously 
uh, the point of going on to an acquittal versus a mistrial is they can't retry them, right? Correct. So, I, I mean, I don't blame them. I would have done the same thing. Although, it's going to be weird here in a minute. <clears throat> in September of 1997, Glisten and Watkins, they are put on trial separately for the murder of Beth, uh, Beth Diop. They're convicted based on the testimony of the car service dispatcher and then additional testimony from the two witnesses that started all this, Gomez and Tavares. Although Tavares gave conflicting testimony at the time, it included seeing the shooting from a window that was apparently located in a place where it wouldn't have been possible to view the crime. Uh, but Tavares identifies Glisson as the shooter. Glisson and Watkins, they're both convicted of secondary murder, and each of them are sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. In 2003, federal authorities have opened an investigation into a Bronx narcotics gang called Sex, Money, and Murder, known as SMM. An investigator named John O'Malley, he debriefs Jose Rodriguez and Gilbert Vega, who are both former members of that gang, who are cooperating in his investigation. Independently, they both describe being involved in the robbery of a cab driver in the Bronx in late 1994 or early 1995. They said that they had each shot the driver and fled and that neither one of them knew whether that driver had survived or died. So O'Malley is a former homicide de detective from the Bronx. He attempts to corroborate the statements, but he's unable to track down the case without the name of the victim or any knowledge of whether it was a homicide at all. Vega and Rodriguez ultimately plead guilty to robbery charges that are based on their own admissions. Fast forward in time to May 2012. Federal prosecutors in New York receive a letter from Glisson, who was serving a sentence at Sing Sing Prison. Glisson wrote that he had heard that Diop's killers were members of the SMM gang. This is the same gang that O'Malley has been investigating back in 2003. The letter is addressed to a prosecutor who is no longer in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And by sheer luck, this letter makes its way to John O'Malley. John O'Malley instantly recognized that the description of the crime in Glisson's letter matched what Rodriguez and Vega had told him nine years earlier. So in June of 2012, the Bronx County District Attorney's Office was provided a copy of Glisson's letter, and after meeting with O'Malley, initiated a reinvestigation of the murders of Denise Raymond and Beth Diop. By then, Tavares was dead, and the trial prosecutor had passed away. In addition, Gomez had since said that her testimony was not true and she had completely recanted. So investigators retrieved the call records from Diop's cell phone. The cell phone had been stolen after he was killed, but the records showed that after his death, the phone was used to place calls to associates of Vega and Rodriguez. After interviewing Vega and Rodriguez, the Bronx prosecutors were convinced of the innocence of Ayers, Cosme, Glisson, Perez, and Watkins. And they all agree that the convictions for the Diop murder should be vacated. 
Okay. So first of all, you got a series of miracles happening here, right? I mean, it's something. So you get this 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 gang in 2003, a couple of them are they're basically admitting to Diop's murder. Correct. Over time, Glisson realizes that that it's possible that the real killers of Diop are members of the same gang that Vega and Rodriguez are members of. He writes a letter to a prosecutor that no longer exists that makes his hand into the very investigator investigating the gang that Vega and Rodriguez are part of who knows the details of this weird taxicab murder. Right. And I wasn't entirely sure, like, were they, <clears throat> were they charged with a, a crime that, like, ultimately the investigator couldn't find the case on? Well, <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. So they plead guilty to robbery charges for robbing a cab driver. But because because there's no there's no victim ever listed. Is that what you mean? I'm just saying, like, that's what I understood to have happened. And, like, there's so many things wrong with that. But, anyway, that's not really part of what we're talking about, except that um, it sort of leads to some of the stuff that happens, right? Right, yeah. It, it, it become, This becomes a very large snowball very quickly with a lot of moving parts. And the, the thing that's strange about this exoneration is this doesn't end up being one, which I'm, I'm sure you realize by now. I was going to say, there's no way it could just be one. Think of the pile up at the beginning. So for as far as Diop's murder go, this ends up being essentially five exonerations at one time. Now, Vasquez had been lumped into all of this, but he, uh, Israel Vasquez, didn't end up being convicted in Diop's murder. He, he was the one that you said was the youngest. Um, he, he was a juvenile. Yeah. Right. So the Bronx prosecutors in this case, they notify Centurion Ministries out of Princeton, New Jersey, which is an organization that investigates wrongful convictions. Centurion Ministries, they file a motion on behalf of Watkins to dismiss the case. Peter Cross is a New York lawyer who had been representing Glisson in 2006 because one of the sisters at Sing Sing, Sister Joanna Chan, who's a, she's a nun there, she had come to believe that she thought Glisson was innocent. So Peter Cross also files a motion to dismiss those charges. So in October of 2012, both Glisson and Watkins, they get out of jail on bond and then December 13th, 2012, the charges against them are actually dismissed. The charges against Ayers, Cosme, and Perez for the Diop murder, they're dismissed around the same time in December 2012. But you got to remember, they're still in prison for the other murder conviction of Denise Raymond. So Vasquez... He had filed a civil rights lawsuit against the city of New York and the NYPD in 2010. As that case moved on, lawyers for the city and for the police department, they turned over the security video that had come out of the prosecution of Charles McKinnon. And this gets shown for the first time to Ayers, Cosme, and Perez as lawyers. 
So they file a motion to set aside the convictions, arguing that that security video should have been disclosed to the attorneys at the first trial, not just McKinnon's trial. That motion also contended that because they'd been tried and convicted simultaneously for the Raymond and the Dyot murder, the jury in the Raymond case may have been influenced by the charges and evidence that they killed Diop, which has since been revealed to be false. That's a mess right there. You know, so what it, do you do? It's a that? disaster. It really is because you, you with some with some of these cases that um where you have to kind of like so you you know, we're at we're we're covering home for Christmas. These are exonerations. So we know at some point somebody's going home for something. But when you have to start from the fact that you know someone's exonerated and then start and then go backwards to the beginning, right? My brain does not work that way. I don't know about you. But but so even though my brain doesn't work that way, these cases are exceedingly difficult to sort of wrap my head around because I can't get behind the decisions that were being made for the most part. I, I, I don't see where anybody said, oh, this is a good idea, right? It's so strange. Another miracle comes into play in the back of this because everybody kind of cooperates here. Like the prosecution mean- gets on board when they can and they realize there's a major screw up. But I mean, not at the beginning, but they get on board once the screw-up has been realized, don't you think? I do, but, like, this is a completely different, like, uh, what, generation of prosecutors or whatever? Yeah, you're right. A, a, a ton of time has passed, yes. And, you know, prosecutors, uh, a DA coming into office uh, and their administrators and uh, assistant district attorneys who are prosecuting cases, they have enough on their plate with like, just kind of dealing with what's happening uh, like currently. And so when you start, I I don't blame them for when something like this were to appear, you would want to resolve it quickly. Right. Cause this is something that they're not even responsible for, except for that. They now have the role that the person who, who did some of this stuff had, right? Yes. I do see where like they would quickly want to do that, but I'm just saying like to the extent that it's reviewed, I would say that doesn't happen very much. It's got to be brought to their attention. Yeah. This case sprawls out in a way I, that very few cases have, you know, the murder of Denise Raymond and uh, they is, is such a big deal that, I I don't know that I've ever seen anything of the magnitude of of what happened here. I mean, I, I can think of a couple of cases where it's got a, like a lot of defendants and like something really atrocious happened, but something about this case uh, in particular felt really strange to me. January twenty third, two thousand thirteen, the Bronx County District Attorney. Uh, they end up agreeing that the motion that has been filed on behalf of Ayers, Cosmo, and Perez, uh, Cosme and Perez, uh, it should be granted. So the convictions for all are vacated, and Ayers, Cosme, and Perez were released from prison. On October 20th of 2013, so about nine months later, the prosecution dismisses the charges. Now, 
federal civil rights lawsuits end up filed in 2014 on behalf of this whole group of people. So the first round settles out. It gets filed in 2014 on behalf of Ayers, Perez, Glisson, Watkins, and Cosme. That lawsuit nets them $8 million apiece. And basically the state of New York settles for, it's a little more than that after, but the lawyer's fees come out in April, 2016. Then Ayers, Watkins, and Perez, they file compensation claims in the, in the New York Court of Claims a little later on. And they end up each, those four end up each receiving around $4 million in settlements. You know, everybody kind of got screwed here. Well, except Charles McKinnon. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so, all right. So you end up with Bafe Diop's, his, the, the driver, his, his case is solved. It's, I don't know if it gets adjudicated because I don't know how that would work. Do you know what I mean? If, because if they charge them in the phantom crime, it might be really difficult to try those two guys. Um, I'm talking about Vega and Rodriguez in terms of. I don't even see how they charge them with the phantom crime. I. I, uh, That's the weirdest thing to me. It is weird. It is. It is now. It granted, is, they just they pled it out, right? Yes, they they pled it out because there's like nobody that's the victim to testify about what happened. It, it it it's very odd. There's a whole there's there's another thing tied to one of the people here with uh, Sean O'Toole from the Homicide Squad. Uh, there's a you can people can go read this if you want. I'm not going to drag it into the show. Um, there's a cop involved named Sean O'Toole, uh, Lieutenant William quote Sean O'Toole. He's uh, made out to be pretty dirty, and uh, the interesting thing about when cases happen in New York is that they can end up being quite the mess. Uh, I say that from the perspective of they get a lot of publicity and they generate a lot of paper. Um, if you want to go read about this case further, there is more to read about the cops. I'm not going to, I'm not going to put all that in here today. I don't think, uh, but these, so the people that we were focused on here, I'm going to say their names one more time. All these guys end up getting exonerated. So we have Devin Ayers. He was 18 when this happened in 1995. Michael Cosme was 19, Carlos Perez was 25, and Israel Vasquez was 17. Eric Glisson was 18, and Kathy Watkins, she was uh, 27. And all of them end up being pretty handsomely rewarded for the terrible circumstances they've been put through in terms of damages. But they, right. they, they went through a lot to get there. And, and but they were a hundred percent innocent. Yeah, they're a hundred percent innocent in that the the cab driver's murder turned out to be uh, confessed to outright um, by uh, Rod, uh, Rodriguez and uh, Jose Rodriguez and Gilbert Vega, and ultimately the murderer of Denise Raymond was put on trial, but was able to use this happening 
to uh, and some bum testimony to. I'm going to say, I believe that the murderer was put on trial and ultimately was let go. Acquitted. I, yeah, yeah, he was acquitted. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that like. Real and that was Charles yeah. McKinnon, right? Yeah, Charles McKinnon. That's who I believe it was. Um, and so, I just want to um sort of, uh, she, and that was her boyfriend, that right? Ex boyfriend. Uh, yeah, like it was. Uh, she had been in a relationship with him, and so you know, uh, was he now? Okay, was he charged initially with everybody else? He was charged as part of a conspiracy but tried separately of them and they all get like kind of dumped in to being tried all together, almost all together for Raymond and Diop's murders. Right. And that was the kind of the proximity of the crimes, right? Yes. Okay. And so, but they ended up being two completely separate crimes, right? Yeah. They're completely, they're completely unrelated. Right. So instead of it being um, two unrelated crimes, right, I find it very hard to believe that a guy that killed his um, ex-girlfriend and then I guess, I mean, there were other witnesses, right? Yes. I find it hard to believe that, like, that whole concoction led police... Two, one, two, three, four. That's five, the part. Six. That's the part. I find it really hard to believe that it led them to like six, you know, certainly these six youngish adults are responsible for this as opposed to the boy, the former boyfriend, right? Yeah. I, I don't see how, how, I just, I don't know. Maybe if I were in, if I were in real time experiencing it, I would understand better. But to me, like this doesn't happen. Like a bunch of kids don't get together and just randomly kill, rob and kill a woman. Right. Uh, Generally speaking, it would be rare. Uh, That kind of, like where they're bound and gagged and blindfolded. It, well, yeah, that's what I mean. Like the, this case in particular, um, that is not something that's going to occur um, with this. Like you know, I don't know. Were they saying that they were a gang? No, they were just kind of implying they were you know good for nothing. It was all out together. A, a group and, of hoodlums, right? Yeah, they um, were all out talking about it afterwards. You know, some of it sounds perfectly reasonable, like these women overhearing in the park, these guys talking about it. I definitely think that like five of them together could not keep their mouth shut. Okay, that's the other thing. Like, why isn't anybody like cutting a deal? Well, they're all being tried together. Nobody's being severed. They all said they didn't do it. Okay, and they maintain that, right? But so yep. the very first one, you okay, yes, they are all being tried together, but I I promise you, the very first one that cuts bait and runs gets the deal. They put all of course, they didn't really need them to put them away cuz they all ended up going away. But um except for the youngest one, right, which he yeah. wasn't ultimately put on trial, right? I don't um, believe so. Yeah, they uh which is another thing, right? Like, how's yeah, that yeah. happen? But um, to me, this is absolutely ridiculous. And it's 
it's almost to the point that it's shameful. Uh, they did spend, um, what, what is it? Well, the years of, so they go, they, they are arrested in 95 for the murders. They're convicted in 97 and they're not let go until 2012. So you're talking 17 years. And, um, it, is, that, is that what you mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, like, this is a really long time for like this absolute nonsense to play I totally out. Agree with that. Yeah, and I can't believe. I hope that most investigators, like today now, uh, when faced with this type of situation, um. I mean, I hope they would be like, well, obviously all these kids didn't do this. We've got to look at a direct motive, right? Well, that's why um, I mentioned the name, but I didn't go any further with the Sean O'Toole guy. Mm-hmm. Because, like, people can go and read about him if they want to see how maybe this happened. Um, he He's a cop that's been accused of lying in court. And, I'll, you know, so the it, it's alleged that he has sabotage several investigations that way. It, is he accused of lying in this case? Yes. And so do you have any idea what his lie was? It was about the locations of the different people. Um, Glisten and Cosme in particular, O'Toole allegedly saw them. Um, and there are multiple conversations they've referenced to him. Uh, it's not something I, I'm, I'm probably not in the best position to speak about it because okay, that's fine. Yeah. I was just curious, but you know, um, I, I always wonder if it's possible that, um, what do you know? Did you say he was a detective or is he a beat cop? Lieutenant. Oh, he's a lieutenant. Okay. Yeah. So, and he was he a lieutenant at the time? Uh, he's a lieutenant when he sued for it in 2016. I don't know what he would have been. Okay. Early. Well, yeah. either way, like, um, I always wonder, like, uh, it's entirely possible that somebody that would be saying, uh, you know, because a police officer giving, like you said, t- location testimony uh, with regard to like this kind of case where there's murders involved, right? Um, you know, a jury sees that as very, very credible, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I, so, I particularly like when you go back that far in time, it, the CSI effect is not yet hit, and the the corrupt cop thing exists, but it's not quite there. But yeah. Right. And so I've always balanced that in my mind with there, this cop doesn't, uh, I'm sorry. I've always thought to myself, well, the, the cop adding the extra, you know, details that aren't true can't possibly uh, understand the gravity of the implications that he's putting on the case. Because why would somebody um, that you know, has signed up to be a police officer, do something like that. I, I, I don't know. I do not know the answer to that. It could amount to like, oh yeah, well, you know, it's, it's just a little bit of, uh, 
you know, it, it's just a little lie, right? Except it's not just a little lie. It, it shifts credibility entirely, right? Yeah. And I, I feel like, um, now you did say that there seemed to be some ramifications happening uh, in that situation, but this is much, much later, almost like 30 years later. Um, and this type of case is, uh, man, it, it's, it's just, if I hadn't just like confusingly read all of it, I wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those cases. And it, uh, like I said, man, it took a miracle for all, all of these things to come together at the end and these guys to get out and to be home for the holidays. I don't have anything else on this one. Do you? No. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys a, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime Excess code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime Excess. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. 
Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. S. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. 
So the first one is, uh, the third one is liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So 
Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention, New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash TrueCrimeXS. You can also use the code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TrueCrimeXS.